Well, good morning, church. My name's Phil Shields. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And I just want to welcome you this morning as you are worshiping with us. Thanks for being here. Hope you find this morning just to be an encouraging time uh, for you. And if you're joining us online, thanks for joining us. Uh, we hope to see you soon. Thanks for being a part of the service today. So we're in the book of Matthew in this series titled, The King and His Kingdom. And so if you want to stay or if you haven't turned yet, go to page 31 in your journals. Uh, Katie just read from there uh, the verses that we're going to be looking at. And those verses are part of uh, the greatest sermon that was ever preached known as the Sermon on the Mount. That this is uh, what Jesus preached during uh, that time. But what's amazing is that these verses carry with it uh, basically this revelation about the practices that disciples of Jesus are to have in their life basically lays out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So we all have practices. I would imagine that you woke up today and you were uh, doing some practices. How you wake up, how you go to bed, the routine you have, all of those are practices. How you show up to work, different things. You all have practices. I have practices in my life. In fact, there's a couple practices that I have learned that I have applied to my life as being a fan of the best sports university in the world, the University of Michigan. <laughs> See, as a fan of the Wolverines, there are many practices or disciplines that you have in your life. In fact, I ended up teaching my kids some of those practices. We apply them in our life when we are out and about. The first one is this, is that they are allowed to talk to any complete stranger that is wearing Michigan gear. And so they will approach someone and they'll see the Michigan gear, they'll look at them and with a smile on their face, they will make direct eye contact and they'll say the phrase, go blue. That's just a practice and it happens all the time. There's another practice that I have taught my kids, and it's that no matter what, no matter what's taking place in every single sport, you don't ever cheer for, support, or have mercy for some school in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> now here's the deal. Some of you right now are thinking, man, this guy is not acting like a Christian. And I just got to tell you, Jesus totally understands, okay? <laughs> These are practices that we, that we carry on as uh, a Wolverine fan. It's what you do. It's just normal practices. We all have them in our life. But if you're going to have practices in your life that have to do with cheering for some team, how much more are you going to have to have practices in your life when it comes to living out the faith you have in Jesus Christ? 
You have to have these practices that take place in your life. And so as we live, we are to have these motivations in our heart, the motivations that will make or break how we live out our faith. And so our text this morning talks about practices and the motivation behind them. So if you're looking at Matthew 6 right now, what you need to look at is, and to remember is that there's always a principle that's going to rise out of the text of Scripture. And I believe that there is, uh, there is one here that rises out, and it's basically this. It's that the motivation of our hearts, the motivation of our hearts reveals the authenticity of our faith. See, the motivation behind what you do, the practices you have, are going to reveal the authenticity of your faith. Now, we'll see this as it carries through. We're going to look at it in in three areas. We're going to see the disciples' warning, then we're going to look at the disciples' practices, and then we will conclude with the disciples' reward. So let's look at the disciples' warning. Whenever we look at this, it's, it's strange to start with a warning, but if you read this section quickly in Matthew 6, you will miss it. But there is a warning that is taking place that, that Jesus has stated here, and it's a big deal for us if we are saying, I want to be a disciple of Christ. See, in the original text, none of this of uh, the text would have chapters and verses. It would be written like a a letter, like a book that you read, and so there would never be a break. So whenever we are reading this text, we have to understand the context behind it, and in order to understand the context behind it, you have to go back one verse. See, in Matthew 5, uh, verse 48, Jesus ends up saying this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now notice, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. I want you to notice something here is that Jesus is making two statements that start with the word be. Be is a word that has to do with action. Jesus is saying that The Lord's disciples will be people that are about action. They're living out action. And it's going to be how you live that people are going to see who Christ is. Now, in the day that this was written, the day that Jesus was present on this earth, there were rabbis. Rabbis would uh, be these uh, teachers and uh, they would study the Jewish law. Every rabbi would have a group of followers known as disciples. And these disciples would follow the, the rabbi around. They would be taught by the rabbi. They would watch what the rabbi would do. And as that was taking place, the entire motivation was so that they would learn what the Jewish law said, what the Jewish law was about, and that they would become like their rabbi. Now put yourself in that situation. Think about this scenario for you. If you have surrendered your life to Christ, 
If you have believed that he is the risen savior, that he took care of your sin, you don't just carry the title Christian, you carry the title disciple. So you have a role and a responsibility that you are to become like your rabbi. You are to live and become like King Jesus. Because when you have surrendered your life, Jesus comes in and he starts to transform who you are. Now get this, you can't just do it by thinking that you can work harder. Jesus comes in and transforms your heart. And then as he's transforming your heart, he is going to transform everything about your will and who he is and and what you are pursuing. So in chapter 5, Jesus is talking, you heard this last week, he's talking about kingdom transformation. And so as he's talking in chapter 5 about this kingdom transformation, what we have to understand is that produces this inner heart transformation. You can look at like verse, uh, chapter 5 verse 20 and and read through that and you can see that it's going to change this heart transformation. But as your heart changes and as Jesus changes you, Then you get to verse 1 of chapter 6, and you realize that there are acts of righteousness that are expected of disciples. And so Jesus, at the very beginning here of chapter 6, gives a warning. Because the warning is about all the verses that follow will be how we live out our faith in the public realm. In the public arena. Because how your faith grows and develops is all done in the public arena. We gather together to worship publicly. We learn from the scriptures publicly. We encourage one another to grow publicly. You go to work and live out your faith publicly. You go into your neighborhood publicly. Everything has to do with this personal faith development and how it's lived out publicly. Because it starts with Jesus transforming your heart. So he gives this warning that has to do with obedience to him. But notice what he says. He says, if you do, you will have no, whenever uh, the second part of verse 1, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So he's dealing with these people that are living from wrong motives. So it doesn't mean that if you just act, God will reward you. Why? It's because the motive of your heart determines what you are living for. The motive behind anything you do determines what you're living for. Motive is that reason for doing something, that reason for why you are pursuing something. And motive is especially done in those hidden or not obvious uh, reasons. So why is your, what is your motive for living out your faith? What's your motive for following Christ? See, whenever we look at this, what we have to understand is that this text is going to solve a problem. And here's the problem that you have, the problem that I have. It's that the motivation of our heart is under attack. The motivation of our heart is in conflict 
See, there's times that we do good things, but we do them because we want recognition rather than for the glory of God. And Jesus is addressing this. See, the the why of our motives is vitally important to understanding what or who is on the throne of our heart. And Jesus is addressing this because in verse 2, he ends up calling the religious leaders hypocrites. So his followers are, are there, but also the religious leaders, and he's calling them out, and he's declaring that they are hypocrites. Pastor and author Warren Wearsby says this. He says, a hypocrite deliberately uses religion to cover up his sins and to promote his own gains. That's what the religious leaders, the pastors of the day, were doing. And they were living to to bring about all this attention on themselves. Their motive was their fame and their glory rather than the glory of God. So Jesus' warning to be perfect as he is perfect, but then to be careful, is because your heart is under attack. And this warning should penetrate our hearts so that we start to deal with the motives of our heart and our righteous acts every single day of our life. Why? It's because you and I are sinful. It's it's because we struggle in this area. And so I want to ask you, are the righteous acts that you are about Are they to make you look good or are they to declare the glory of God in his kingdom? Because the motivation of our hearts reveals the authenticity of our faith. So Jesus gives this warning. He starts it out, but then he ends up talking about the practices of disciples and if you look at the text, you realize he breaks it up and, and into three areas. And I want to be clear with you that the three areas that we're looking at this morning aren't the only three expectations of a disciple. I think the reason he addresses these three at the beginning here is because this is what the religious leaders were doing the most how they were reacting the most. They were, uh, they were handling these three areas very publicly and, di- and had the wrong motives. But I also think that Jesus deals with this because of the areas of the heart that he wants to deal with his disciples. And if you look at it, here's the three areas. In verse two, we end up seeing that Jesus says, when you give to the needy, So he is dealing with giving, and what he's doing is he's dealing with the generosity of the heart, the generosity of the disciple. Then in 6.5, he says, when you pray. So he's dealing with this praying, but that area of the heart has to do with the communication and the relationship with God. And then last, in in, uh, verse 16, he ends up dealing with when you fast. And so fasting deals with this area of the heart of what do you hunger for? What are you hungry for? What is it that you are desiring? And so he he looks at these practices and they're listed there. 
And what he calls these practices are righteousness, righteous acts. But what's important to understand for you, for me, is that righteousness is not a performance. It's not a performance. It's actually a disciple's spontaneous action because of the transformation that Jesus is doing in your life. It's not about acting. It's about the transformation and that being lived out. So as you, as a disciple, are you pursuing life and living like your master? A life that gives glory to King Jesus? Well, your practices will show that. So let's, let's look at these. I, I need to uh, ask this. Can I, uh, can I dad brag a little bit? If you said no, I was still going to do it. So. so my daughter, Kiana, she's 15. She is uh, beautiful, has an incredible character, loves the Lord, doesn't have a boyfriend. <sighs> Thank you, Jesus. But she is like ultra competitive. I mean, fiery competitive. She uh, loves volleyball. She plays for a club in their national program. And um, I love watching her. And I get blown away because she plays as a hitter. And when she goes to hit the volleyball, her goal is to break the fingers of those trying to block her. I love that. All in Christian love, okay? But here's what I've had to understand about my daughter. See, in order for her to develop, and she is a a great player, but as she develops, she has to be about practices, She has to be attending when there are expectations on her because of what she is doing that she is at practices and she's going to practice repeatable movements. She's going to practice passing. She's going to practice conditioning and strength uh, conditioning, mental conditioning. She's going to practice serving all these things that are repeatable over and over and over again. In order for her to grow as a player, she has to practice and have disciplines in her life to get better. And those practices are expected of her. So when she goes onto the court, it looks natural. I go on the court, not natural at all. Because I'm not practicing. What Jesus does in verse 6 is he says there are expected practices that my disciples will have. Notice those three areas that I pointed out to you, they all started with when you. It's not if you get around to it. It's when you do this. And so you need to evaluate this morning as a disciple of Christ, are these practices a part of your life? Let's look at the first. Giving, it has to do with the generosity of your heart. Look at verse 2. So when you give, when you give to the needy, 
do not announce it. Notice that. He's saying, do not announce it as the hypocrites do. Don't do it to be honored by others. Because that honor that they get is the only reward that they will have. Now, poverty was widespread in the time of Jesus. In fact, poverty continues today. And what would take place is that the spiritual person, the person that was convicted and, and saw that God cares for the needy, the spiritual person would see the needy and they would desire to help and care for the situation that person was in. But Jesus addresses this uh, situation from an interesting perspective. It seems that even back then, this was rising up, and it continues today. It doesn't have to do with everybody, but what we find is that often those that care the most for the needy often want the most human praise. And so there, there's charities all over the place that, that want that praise to come back to them. And they make the discipline public to gain notoriety for themselves. So Jesus is literally saying not to do this. What's interesting is that during this time uh, when the, the religious leaders would walk around and draw attention to themselves, uh, the thinking is, is that the baskets that people would put the money into to help those in need were actually shaped like a trumpet. And so that's why this phrase is used. And so they would drop the, the, the coins in and they would put this in and it would, it would kind of make some uh, a noise. And so he's saying, don't draw attention to yourself. Modern day is this, don't toot your own horn. Like don't, don't bring that uh, attention to you. And so what we find is that the religious leaders are using righteous acts for their own glory for selfish glory, and Jesus is saying, what we do and why we do it matters. We are to be generous. You and I as disciples are to be generous, and the motive of our heart for that generosity must not be the praise of other people. The motive of, for a disciple is simply that Jesus has been generous with us, and because he's been generous with us, we are generous with others. The problem is, is that we're so short-sighted that we miss out on the generosity of Christ each and every day. And so he's saying, do this. Notice what he says. He says, Jesus puts it this way, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That seems strange. How's that possible? I'll give you a simple example. How do you brush your teeth? I know it's weird, but hopefully you did that this morning. If you didn't, don't whisper to anybody, okay? But you and I, we probably brush our teeth different, but we have patterns. 
So we use one hand to put the toothpaste on and we use one hand to hold the toothbrush and how we start brushing our teeth is the same each and every day. It could be side to side, up and down, the teeth that we go to. And so we brush our teeth with these patterns and here's what happens. As you're using one hand to brush your teeth, the other hand has no idea that you're doing that. Why? Because it's natural. It's just natural. Now, Jesus is saying, make sure that your giving is natural. It's the natural action of a transformed heart. That this giving is not for the praise of others, but for the glory of Jesus. He is saying, be silently generous. And so I want to ask you are you silently generous? If you claim to be a disciple, The reality is, is that this practice of generosity is to be a part of your life and the motive of it should be the generosity of Christ to you. Well, then uh, he deals with the giving and then he goes to prayer. And notice how in this section, he starts with this prayer and he he starts in verse five, and when you pray, This phrase comes up again. Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners. Why? To be seen by others. Again, Jesus starts with the negative. And so he's calling out the super spiritual. He's calling out the motives of their heart. And what he's saying is, you're using these righteous acts, but they are just an act. There is nothing righteous about him. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus is not saying that public prayer is wrong. In fact, Jesus publicly prayed. What Jesus is showing us is that prayer is much more than a command for the disciple. It's actually an invitation. It's an invitation for his disciples to be brought into the prayer life of him. The prayer life of Jesus. And so what we learn from this model prayer is that Jesus isn't saying that his disciples pray to give him information. What he's saying is that his disciples pray to reveal that prayer is about changing our identity, changing our will, changing what we value in our character. It's actually changing who we are becoming while we seek answers from God. Now, what's interesting is that this section of Scripture is known as the Lord's Prayer. Several years ago, we did um, a whole sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I actually preached this text of the prayer. And I'm going to say what I said back then, that this text shouldn't actually be called the Lord's Prayer. Now, before you kick me out, hear me out, okay? This prayer, I believe, should actually be called the Disciples' Prayer. Now, why would I say that? It's because if this is the Lord's Prayer, why would Jesus have to pray for forgiveness? He was sinless. It's not his prayer. He's giving us a model. Actually, the Lord's Prayer should probably be found in John 17. John 17, he's praying for you and for me and for his disciples that he's leaving. And that actually, John 17, should be called the Lord's Prayer. 
This is a model prayer for us to understand what prayer should look like. And notice that Jesus gives a model prayer for us and deals with the motive of our heart right at the beginning. Look at what it says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The motive of the heart is all about hallowed be your name, your kingdom, your will, not ours. And so he's saying for the disciple, it's actually difficult to pray selfish prayers if you start by giving glory to God and pursuing his will. He's saying pray and pray uh, for, for God's will and for God's kingdom. And then he reveals a daily aspect. Look at the next part. He says, give us today our daily bread. I want to ask you, for some of you, you have anxiety. You have fears that that come upon you at different times. What do those anxiety fears often have to do with? I know for me, they often have to do with future Future elements, my my kids and their future, our future as a family, whatever it may be, it's all future. But what Jesus is saying is just focus on today, the daily. He's not saying that planning is wrong, but what Jesus reveals is that if you have a focus on the daily needs, what it does is it keeps us grounded and dependent on him. Disciples are to be dependent on their master, on King Jesus. And so he says, focus on today. Then look at verses 12 through 15. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so he goes on and he talks about forgiveness. And so Jesus is saying, in your prayer, deal with forgiveness, that you need forgiveness and you need to forgive others, and that there will be spiritual attacks that come upon you. Now, think about this for a second. If he's saying this to the hypocrites, he's saying that when you focus on being seen and heard, you forget that the evil one is going to attack you. When you focus on being seen or heard when you pray, you're going, to fo- you're going to focus on yourself and forget that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. He's giving us a model prayer to sit there and go, okay, don't, don't just uh, enter my life, this new relationship with me, and pray and just go, man, it feels so good to be forgiven and not do anything with that. He's saying rejoice in that forgiveness and then go and forgive your enemies. He's saying live this practice out. So what we have to understand is uh, prayer is to be a part of our life, but this last part, he's saying forgiving others shows more spiritual growth often than praying publicly. Praying like the hypocrites. So the motivation, the motivation of private prayer that is this intimate, close relationship with Jesus, that it's growing. And what private prayer ends up leading to in your life 
It's going to lead to this deep closeness that will allow you to then, when you are in the public arena, that you can pray publicly because your motivation is on the glory of God, on his will being done instead of your own. Because the motivation of our hearts reveals the authenticity of our faith. So Jesus deals with uh, giving and he deals with prayer and then he deals with fasting. Look at uh, verse 16. When you fast, expectation, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So Jesus is dealing with this subject of, of fasting. You might be like, well, what is fasting? Well, in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, fasting was giving up. It was actually denying yourself. And in Leviticus 23, what we see is that the nation of Israel is supposed to deny themselves. They are to fast from food. And then what they did is they took that food and they brought it and put it on the altar as an offering to God. Because that day was known as the Day of Atonement. It was the day that God would be dealing with their sins. So any time that they felt the hunger during that fast, what it pointed them back to was the sin in their life and that God takes care of that. So Jesus is saying that whenever you fast, meaning it should be part of our lives, it becomes a reminder and a refocus on the grace and mercy of God. And so we see throughout the Old Testament that there's actually, the entire nation would fast on days. So people would know that one another were fasting. But in Matthew 6, Jesus is dealing with the motivation of the heart. So how were the religious leaders hypocritical. Well, notice what they did. They looked somber. Their facial expressions were downcast. They, they walked around looking a certain way so that it would draw attention. They, would, they could say, well, we're fasting. And they would get recognition. People would go, oh, they're so spiritual. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. And in verses 17 and 18, he ends, up, he ends up saying that when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. Why? It's because he's saying, hey, when you go to fast, look good. Really, he's saying, look good, look normal. Don't draw attention for your fast to yourself. Fasting is about hungering after God's will. And you can't do that if the focus is on yourself. So let me ask you, what do you hunger for? When, when you fast or maybe you don't fast and, and there's a time coming up that you need to fast and you need to be reminded of, of the glory of God and his grace and mercy, what are you going to be hungry for? Jesus is saying, hunger for me. The praise of man will go away, but he is forever. 
So we deal with the disciples' warning and we looked at the disciples' practices and that leads us to the disciples' reward. See, in this section of the sermon, uh, Jesus ends up that he is clear that the, motives of a, the motive of a disciple's life is the transformation of their heart. And what happens is throughout this text, it is directly tied to reward. The reward that people will give, but also the reward that he gives. And he says that if the, if the motive is the praise of others, then that's going to be it. That's all the, the reward that they're going to get. But if the motive of the heart is different, if it's for God, then there is some different reward. What we have to understand with this is that when reputation becomes more important than your godly character, you've become a hypocrite. And so what are you going to be focused on? Now, the other piece of this is that Jesus didn't say to, to offer these rewards as the primary motive for us to have righteous acts. It's actually a byproduct of what we do, our righteousness. So our motive should be that we want to please God. Why? Because a disciple who follows their master is a disciple who wants to obey their master. And so we want to obey Christ with our life, and we want to obey Christ with a whole heart in gratitude for what he has done through Jesus Christ. And so if rewards are our motivation, then we're really focused on ourselves again. Friends, God is going to judge the greatness of his disciples by searching the heart looking at the inner attitudes of his followers and seeing the acts that are done in secret. And what we find is that the disciple is called to live this holy life and the reward that comes through giving, through praying, through fasting, is that you are called a child of the Most High King, your reward is more and more and more of Jesus. It's, your reward is more and more becoming like Jesus. Your reward is that you are known as one of his children. And so he puts these practices in place because the reward you're going to gain is that you are going to understand him and you are going to be deeper with him. You're going to love him more and he is going to be clearly involved in your life. What's fascinating is that Jesus uh, says these things. He talks about these practices. But it's really interesting to look at these practices through the eyes of Jesus. This is what I mean by that. Jesus, he gave. He was a giver. He gave generously and he gave generously to the needy because you are one of the needy. He gave himself for you. Not only that, but Jesus, he, he prayed and, and he, he lived this out. And in John 17, like I said, he is praying and he says these words. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. He's praying this out. For you today to live as a disciple of him. 
But we also realize that Jesus fasted. What was he hungry for? He hungered for you to be connected with his father. And so he fasted. He denied himself the ability to leave the cross. And he willingly went to the cross for you. See, Jesus is asking us to do the same things that he did. And when we live to become more and more like Jesus, we are rewarded with knowing the king who went to the cross and rose again, defeating death. But we have to remember that the motivation of our hearts reveals the authenticity of our faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for how direct your son was in preaching this sermon. And so I pray for myself and I pray for uh, the rest of your disciples that are here or watching online. I ask that you would help us. That the motivation of our heart, that we would assess what our motivations are. That you would help us correct our motivations so that it is about your glory and your will and living for you. And I confess, Father, that there are many days that I don't do that. I ask that you forgive me for that, forgive my friends for that. And I ask that we would be disciples here at Wheaton Bible Church that are passionately pursuing you, that are putting these practices and disciplines into our life, that we live them privately, and with the right motivation, we live them publicly. So guide us in that. In your name I pray, amen.